0: Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 26 for October 2020. On today's show, we're joined by Dr. Bruce Clark, Director of the Rutgers Center for Turfgrass Science and Extension Specialist in Turfgrass Pathology at Rutgers University. In today's show, we talked to Dr. Clark about how he first got into turf, Dollar Spot's new name, how fertility and cultural practices influence anthracnose severity, and how pH and manganese play a role in turf disease tolerance. Before we get into that, If you want to support the show, you can help us out by subscribing to us on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address, or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes at heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Well, Dr. Clark, appreciate your time today. Appreciate your willingness to join us. I know our, our sales team and our representatives around the country have... Listening to this podcast. Uh, you're, you're one of the guys that they pointed out that they want to hear from. So I so appreciate your time. I was looking into backgrounding myself a little bit for for today. And something that was interesting to me that popped out was that your undergraduate degree is actually in forestry.
1: That's so kind of curious.
0: How did you end up? How did you end up getting into turf initially?
1: Well, I always, obviously I like plants, but you know, forestry are bigger plants. And uh, I took some courses right. actually in plant pathology when I was an undergraduate in a forest management major. And um, I really liked the, the plant pathology part of it. And it was an opportunity to go on to graduate school in plant pathology. So I took that. And then um, when I was finishing up with my PhD, uh, I started getting involved with the turf program here and um, realized that turf was a fantastic crop to work on. And so, I knew nothing about turf when I started, but um, I had some great mentors um, on the faculty here, and I had a really strong background in pathology. So, um, the, you know, path- the pathogens are the same. <laughs> Just have to yeah. learn the system. The system, turf system is a is a very intensive system to learn. Yeah.
2: When did you start that crossover in, into turf? About, around what time? That was probably started over in
1: the, uh, in the early 80s. And so, uh, you know, it's been it's been almost 40 years, but I tell you, it's. I, I started off, people used to call me the boy pathologist because I was the youngest person on the faculty. I started at 26 and uh, 40 years later, now I'm one of the older person in the faculty. So it's, <laughs> you stay around long enough, it happens.
0: Now you've been on the Rutgers faculty your entire career, correct?
1: That's correct, which is unusual for many people. I realize that, but for me, um, it worked out beautifully. Uh, there were a lot of uh, upward uh, opportunities for me Um, I I joined the faculty in in 1982, um, and then I became turf center director in 1993, Um, and so it just sort of, things just sort of laid out very well, so there's no reason to move.
0: And you look at Rutgers, you look at the research facility that you guys have in terms of for a pathologist, I mean, that's got to have some of the highest, most consistent disease pressure of any other turf areas in the country, I don't imagine.
1: No, it's fantastic. Uh, you're you're living uh, in the Mid Atlantic area, which is a vir- virtual cornucopia of turfgrass diseases. It's a, it's a, it's a turfgrass pathologist dream up here. So, yeah, it's a great place to work. And and I'm, I'm uh, and I'm blessed to work with a, a bunch of really great um, faculty and staff. And so it's been you know extremely enjoyable uh, almost forty years now.
2: This is the current experimental site always been the turfgrass? Experiment station.
1: That's an that's an interesting question. The answer is no. The short answer is no. But it has not moved far. Uh, originally, when I first came on board uh, in um, in 1982, um, the the original site was of uh, the turfgrass farm was actually right on campus. Um, that now is a is a huge parking lot and greenhouse complex, and so that all moved over um, in the 80s when I first got there. Moved over about a mile away from campus. So we have a uh, we have two major research farms. One is about a mile from campus. It's a 37-acre farm. And then we have almost a 200-acre farm, which is about 40 minutes south in Freehold uh, or Adelphia. So we have very nice facilities that are really close by.
0: I'm curious, um, you mentioned that turf being a great platform for pathology research or a great system for pathology research. What in particular makes turf such a unique or a good a good crop for pathology research versus, say, forestry or crops or any other?
1: Well, I think, you know, all the crops offer opportunities. Um, You know, turf is nice because when I, I actually trained in in ornamentals, uh, you know, trees, shrubs. Um, I did did a good deal of work with agronomic crops, potatoes, tomatoes uh, as well. Um, But, you know, when you're dealing with ornamentals, there are just hundreds of different ornamental plants. And so you have to learn, (laughs) there's a lot of different diseases Mm -hmm. to attack them. On turf, you you only have a, a handful of species, and so uh, you can focus really intensely on 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 that. And plus, I think one of the the, the most enjoyable opportunities for me was working with turfgrass managers because for the most part, they're extremely interested in what you have to say. They read a lot, um, and if they trust you, they they pretty much follow your recommendations. Uh, whereas you know, farmers often uh, they don't do that because they. They don't, you know, they don't take a recommendations because they, they don't do it that way, uh, you know, historically. And uh, so I, I think to a large extent, it's just um, a great group of people. The turf industry, as you know, many of those people I count as my close friends now, and, and so it's it's a real true partnership with, with many universities, not just Rutgers. I think that's true for turf throughout the country.
0: I agree. Let's, uh, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and get in towards some of your actual research that we want to talk about today, some of the meat and potatoes of today's conversation. One paper, or article in, in particular, and this one's accessible by any anyone through golf course management, It was a Notes best management practices paper uh, that you published alongside a few co-authors a few years ago. And in that paper you outlined a few different best management practices as it related to cultural practices, as it related to fertility, fungicide applications, um, and wrapping all the kind of everything that we know about all those different different practices. With that kind of setting the stage, what are the most important practices in your mind that a superintendent can implement on their property to limit anthracnose severity?
1: Well, I think anthracnose is probably a poster child, if you will, for how, um, you know, anything that weakens a plant will enhance uh, anthracnose. Um, it's a major issue on annual bluegrass. It's also a problem on bentgrass. Um, and we started that work uh, back around uh, the, the turn of the century, essentially, uh, 2000. And, um, and that work was done uh, not only at Rutgers with Dr. Jim Murphy, who's an agronomist, and myself, and our graduate students, but that was a, cl- a collaborative effort by 12 different universities, including the University of Guelph in Canada. And so we, we had two very large uh, multi-state research projects over a period of 10 years and collaboratively uh, put together what I think is an excellent set of best management practices for turf managers to follow today. And those those main cultural practices uh, focus on fertility. Uh, it focuses focuses on irrigation practices, uh, top dressing practices, uh, and mowing practices. And those four areas are, are key to a successful anthracnose management program.
0: Specifically, what was interesting before we get into some of the more, I guess the chemical inputs and the fungicide inputs, in terms of uh, cultural practices, uh, a lot of the premise of the paper mentioned that there was I guess, an association with top dressing and increased anthracnose severity. And it seems that you guys found more so that decreased, or excuse me, regular top dressing led to decreased anthracnose severity.
1: Yeah, exactly. I often joke with people that that was probably, and I think it was the biggest surprise in my career, because all the common knowledge at that time uh, pointed to the fact that uh, if you have anthracnose, you know, we recommend you did not top dress because everyone thought it would increase disease. And so when Dr. John Ingujado, was currently the turf pathologist at University of Connecticut, he was, uh, he was a graduate student, Jim Murphy and I, uh, back around 2004-2005, uh, we decided to look at cultural, cultural practices. And one of the practices we, we looked at were top dressing, with the idea that everyone knows it increases anthracnose. So let's just, you know, let's just put a study out there because, honestly, at that time there was no research to back it up. It was all just anecdotal, observational, and intuitive, what they thought was intuitive. Um, and it was wrong; it was just completely wrong. Um, in fact, we're working right now on the fourth edition of the Turf Disease Compendium, and this, if you go back to the second edition, it clearly says in there, "Do not touch recipe if you have anthracnose." So, you know, pathologists. I, I
0: have that book on my uh, my bookshelf behind me over here. So maybe <laughs> I need to maybe I need to
1: get rid of that one and get the fourth edition when it comes out. That's right. But it just shows that uh, you can't take things for granted. That that's why people conduct research. And when John actually did the research, he showed clearly that as you increase top dressing rates and reduce the frequency of top dressing, um, you saw a, a dramatic decrease in anthracnose, which was totally unexpected. It took a while for superintendents to really buy into that. Um, and now it's considered to be common knowledge. If you ask any, um, any first year turf student, uh, you know, is, does the top dressing decrease anthracnose? They say, of course it decreases anthracnose. But 15 years ago, it, everybody thought the opposite,
2: so that was well, a surprise. Is and the it was mechanism really, there at play. Excuse me. The mechanism. Well, yeah, that's
1: yes. That's, a, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, the mechanism basically is thought to be uh, twofold. Um, number one, you're in top dress and you, you roll an area, you firm it up, so you're getting a very good putting surface, but you're also getting a very good growing surface. You get better contact with the roots with 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 the, with the soil surface. And uh, also you get more erect plants, so they're more photosynthetically active, so you get a healthier plant. If you look at the crowns on a a well-top-dressed plant, the crowns are are thicker, they're healthier, they're deeper in the profile. So it's just a a better, healthier, well-supported plant. So we know that anything that stresses a a grass plant will actually enhance anthracnose. So if top-dressing gives you a better growing surface and a healthier plant that way, it makes sense why you'd see less anthracnose. But it's also, I think, um, indirect effect. And the indirect effect will be when you sand top dress and then you put a a heavy mower on it. That mower on a well top dress rolled surface will sink into the canopy less than on a non top dress site. Uh We all know when you don't top dress, it gets spongy, very soft, and the mowers sink in. So essentially, a top dress site compared to a non top dress site would effectively raise the height of cut, even though the bench setting might be at 110 uh, it's just high. It's not sinking into the canopy as much, so we know that that's so the one thing we did know when we started this work 20 years ago that low mowing heights would enhance anthracnose, and so I think effectively sand top dressing is effectively raising your height of cut.
2: Are there rule of thumbs in terms of how much sand to apply per thousand square feet per week?
1: Yeah, that, that's a good question. It obviously would depend, I think, on on the on the putting green. Um, but in general, uh, we found somewhere between on a yearly basis, between a thousand and two thousand um pounds per thousand square feet um, is going to be giving you optimum control. And interesting, the research would show very clearly that if you front end your if you front load your top dressing in the, in the beginning of the season. So say you're coring and then you're backfilling and then your your top dressing to keep the canopy full of sand. So if the growth of the grass slows down, you top dress less. If it speeds up, you top dress more. And so in general, we showed, uh, John's work showed clearly that as you decrease the frequency of top dressing, in other words, the, the sooner you get the canopy full of sand, um, the quicker you see the benefits. So if you're light dusting, it may take a while to see that benefit. Whereas if you're coring in a spring, backfilling, and then keeping that canopy full of sand, you'd see um, more of a benefit. And that one to 2,000 pounds I was talking about was, was actually um, independent of coring. We, we didn't core our, our studies because we didn't want a, another variable, namely Um So we, we were just simply top dressing, to show the, the straight effect of top dressing alone.
0: Let's talk a little bit about fertility and anthracnose. Now, I guess the disclosure here is I should say that Harold, each year we do a, a, a lot of research with you guys at Rutgers. Um, different fertility programs and how those fertility programs either suppress um, anthracnose or or make a healthier plant, at least. And so, anthracnose is not as prevalent. But in terms of the research and in terms of the papers that you've published, what effects have nitrogen potassium had on anthracnose severity?
1: Well, I, I tell you, fertility is by far and away the greatest, has the greatest impact on anthracnose. Um, a good fertility program can dramatically reduce anthracnose, even without any fungicides. So it's critical. And you know, we've we looked at, at various fertility programs. Harrell's is one of the ones we've looked at for many years. And um, if it's a good fertility program, uh, we've seen um, a you know 30, 40, 50 percent reduction in disease, uh, just simply by by having a, an excellent fertility program in place. And uh, one of the interesting things was we were looking at nitrogen source in the beginning. There was some indication at early work at Penn State that nitrogen source affected anthracnose. And we started looking at this, and we, we actually looked at different nitrogen sources and found that all the nitrogen sources reduced anthracnose compared to non-fertilized turf. So nitrogen in general reduces it. But we found that certain nitrogen sources actually do a better job. And in particular, um, we the potassium and calcium nitrates seem to be reducing anthracnose more than, say, ammonium sulfate. And so the question came up, is this a potassium effect? Uh, Is this a pH effect? Uh, Is this a calcium effect? Because remember I said calcium nitrate or potassium nitrate both reduced it. And so that we embarked in 2011 of a study that's still going on today. So we've been doing it for nine years. And the answer to that basically is is that potassium turns out to be an incredibly important nutrient. Um, It's it's something that um, it not only is needed by the plant, but but is, is shown to dramatically reduce anthracnose almost as much as, as nitrogen, which is something that's a real surprise. And so the work actually with one of our graduate students, who Chaz, Dr. Chaz Schmid, uh, now who works works out on the West Coast, um, he showed clearly that, that potassium, it was a rate response. Um, as you increase your potassium rate, uh, you got less anthracnose. Uh, as long as you were above the, the critical level, which is about 50 parts per million potassium. And so oh, potassium, soil, potassium um, uh, K2O, uh, essentially what, you know, if you're above 50 parts per million in the mat layer, that sandy mat layer where the roots are in the summertime, um, you would see if you're below it, you'll see more anthracnose. If you're above it, you'll see less. And so for people who tissue tests, it's usually around 2% potassium in the tissue or 50 ppm in a sandy mat layer. And the interesting thing is, is that a lot of people will take soil tests, they'll, they'll put a soil probe in the ground, they'll go down, you know, say five inches and send it off to a lab and the potassium comes out, sufficient. But if they, but if you think about it, where are your roots growing, especially any bluegrass on a putting green in the summer? It's growing in the, in the upper half inch maybe. And that, thats a, usually if people sand top dress, that's a sandy mat layer. That sandy mat layer is invariably has much less available potassium than than the than the soil below it. And so that's where people need to test if they have anthracnose—is in that sandy mat layer, not in the five, five, you know, four or five inch soil soil profile.
0: I guess that's a good general recommendation for soil testing in in general. You know, let's test where where the plant is, and not necessarily where the plant's not. Yeah, that's true.
2: Do you have a recommendation for tissue, nitrogen tissue content? Yeah, that
1: that work was actually done recently by uh, Dr. John Linguajato at University of Connecticut. You can see a lot of our students have branched out and they continue to do work in that area, so we still collaborate with them, which is really great. Uh, But John did this work himself and he he actually showed that um, if you're doing tissue testing that he showed a a dramatic reduction in anthracnose until you got to about 3.6% nitrogen in the tissue and then you saw it plateaued, completely leveled off, which means as you increase your nitrogen above that, you see no benefit in, in, in anthracnose. And in some cases, if it increased it too much, you actually see a, a slight uptick in disease. So the sweet spot is around 3.6% nitrogen. And for people applying nitrogen um, in an area like New Jersey, you know our growing season goes from, from like April through um, November, um, Basically, we're talking about total nitrogen being somewhere around uh, 3.5 to 4 pounds in a growing season of actual nitrogen. Um, and that would vary depending on where you are. If you're in Florida, you have a longer growing season, it would be different. If you're in an area, let's say up in Minnesota, you have a shorter growing season, it would be it'd be lower. Uh, where most people get a problem is where they're they're down around uh, you know pound and a half, a pound and a quarter in growing season. Um, when we first started this work in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, a lot of superintendents that had tremendous anthracnose problems, their nitrogen programs were exceptionally lean. And and that's really, that's not good because that's just setting the stage for disease. It's making the disease more pronounced.
2: What, what do you think drives that desire to minimize nitrogen input, even though your work suggests increasing it, helps the plant become less susceptible to disease well that's
1: a great great question i think the obvious answer there is is um the desire to maintain their jobs um (laughs) through through maintaining turf performance and you know mainly green speed but also quality and you know running it lean and dry and hard putting greens are are really uh the way to increase green speed and prior to our work, um, there was nothing known. Um, the only thing we knew that low, low mowing heights enhanced disease, we had no idea what impact a uh, rolling had on disease, uh, double cutting, um, all the factors that we would use to maybe enhance green speed. We had no idea what the effect was. So until we did that work, um, it was hard to encourage superintendents to uh, raise your nitrogen level. And to raise your mowing heights, and we showed clearly, I think, that they can sort of have their cake and eat it too. They can maintain um, putting speeds, you know, eleven five, ten five, eleven five, if they're willing to uh, increase their rolling, which now is very common. Um, if they're willing to double cut on occasion, and if they're willing to slightly bump up their height of cut, but compensate by by rolling and and increasing their frequency of cut.
0: I can't point to the. Specific research but I believe that there was someone who did some work showing that the rolling and double cutting at higher mowing heights can provide a similar ball speed to lower mowing at a single cut yeah that, that so was that actually seems what to that, was a
1: fact, that was a factorial study with John and Guajado here at Rutgers where he showed oh, basically yeah. that you could dramatic, you could maintain um, acceptable putting speed um, by manipulating those factors that was some of the first large studies we did They were they were composite studies or factorial studies involving um, mowing heights uh, changing mowing height um, rolling frequency and 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 uh, frequency of cut so yeah that's that was uh, some initial work that, which showed basically that you could start putting these factors together and having a, an, a more of a, like an additive effect of reducing anthracnose
0: how about lph and its effect or, or Does it have much of an influence on it does have an influence on nutrient availability, but does that have is that the mechanism on the influence on disease severity or is there something else going on there?
1: Yeah. In fact, you would ask me that question a couple of years ago. I would have said, yeah, that that's the effect. Uh, Now um, it's it's not not as clear because, you know, when you run a study for one year or two years, you draw conclusions. But often it's hard to make make statements that are that's true for a long run on a golf course, because golf courses obviously are maintaining it for a long time. Um, but that pH study we're running actually is a study we started in 2011, so it's gone on for nine years, which is kind of unusual for research studies. There aren't many research studies that go on for nine years in the same spot, nope. and what we've shown clearly is that as you, if you get your pH um, above s- around 6.0, you tend to see a reduction in, in disease, and the way we did that was we had different liming rates, so the higher liming rates got higher pHs, and it's, it's you see a, a a linear reduction in disease as the pH goes up with increased liming. But the question was, what about calcium? Because as you lime, you get more calcium. Mm-hmm. So we have gypsum in there, which a uh, gypsum supplies a calcium source but does not affect pH. And so after after many, many years of applying gypsum, uh, we found that um, if you get compared to plots where you did not apply gypsum or lime, over a nine year period, the calcium levels can drop pretty darn low. And it looks like when you get, and we don't know exactly what rate it is now, but as you get um, insufficient levels of calcium, you tend to see an increase in anthracnose as well. So, the gypsum treatments and the lime treatments are reducing disease compared to the sulfur treatments or the non the non-limed or gypsum treatments. So, it, the answer to that question is, yes, pH has an effect on anthracnose. Anything below 6.0 will enhance it. Anything above 6.0 will reduce it. But it looks like if people do have, and I don't know how common this is, but if they have calcium deficiencies, they can expect more anthracnose as well.
0: That, that's interesting, too, if, You somewhat tie that back to the calcium nitrate, potassium nitrate. You had both of those. We, we, yep. we showed that, or you showed that nitrate, or not, excuse me, nitrogen improves disease tolerance, but also potassium and calcium were having a beneficial effect that's as right. well. But those and two so, we, were, I guess. When we
1: designed it. that study after that observation, you know, with potassium, calcium nitrate reducing disease, we we embarked on what turned out to be like a, you know, a nine year study. Um, the answer to that is uh yes. <laughs> Nitrogen all potassium, helps. calcium, pH, the answer is yes. They all affect disease.
0: How about uh fungicide resistance in anthracnose? What are the what's the current status of different modes of action with Documented resistance.
1: Oh, fungicide resistance. Yeah, um, that's that's been a challenge. In fact, um, when we first started the work in 2000, uh, there were we didn't know a lot about the chemistries that would really suppress anthracnose. And um, we did know uh, that when the strobes were released, they were they were very effective anthracnose materials. you uh, zoxystrobin, pyraclostrobin, um, and and all those uh, those products in the, in the QOI groups. And we started noticing, though, as people use these and maybe overuse these to control anthracnose, that they weren't getting control anymore or weren't getting very good control. And and that, you know, paper came out not soon after that showing that, yeah, there was definitely um, uh, documentation of strobe-resistant um isolates out there. Um, but, and the same was true with um, with um, the benzimidazoles, uh, T-methyl and, uh, and uh, benamol at the time, you know, terse in 1991 back in the... in in the 70s and 80s. Um, But so we have resistance to the benzimidazoles in many courses. We have resistance to the strobes on many courses. And we have reduced sensitivity to some of the DMIs on some courses, not as widespread and it's not as dramatic. So that's a problem. And so we started looking at other chemistries that would suppress and, and started looking at the benefits of tank mixing and rotating these chemistries and found that there's about 13 chemistries fungicide chemistries that will suppress anthracnose some more effective than others and there are resistance issues with at least 3 of them three groups um, there's government restrictions on chlorothalonil so that's a you know that's a nitrile group so you have four chemistries that you you have issues with and so most of our work has been geared at looking at rotating the chemistries tank mixing these chemistries to reduce the potential for resistance and and maintain or improve fungicide efficacy and actually tank mixing with our work clearly shows um, that it it enhances control so enhances control in
0: resistant populations
1: it enhances control in resistant or non-resistant populations and i think the answer the reason for that is it's pretty clear Uh, if you ask any pathologist uh you know if if they get a sample from a golf course where they are they likely to pull out one isolate uh, w- one strain of, a, of the anthracnose fungus or multiple they'll all say multiple and some of the and those strains if you say i pull out 12 or 13 strains from a, your golf course putting green um each one of those strains if i put them on a petri dish will have probably a different level of susceptibility to these different chemistries so uh, that's why tank mixing i think broadens your control of the different isolates in your in your putting green
2: how how many different modes of action would you suggest a you you implement in a season for a given uh, pathogen?
1: Well, you know that's 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 a good question. I think it's a hard answer. Um, I, I, the way I approach this is basically I don't look at anthracnose um, alone. I look at a, a broad based program, and so I'd ask the superintendent, you know, to tell me what are your major diseases you're concerned about. And when did it typically occur and then I tried to put fungicide groups or chemistries in to suppress the diseases uh, on a preventive basis when they're likely to occur and then I try to mix and match and rotate so that I'm getting control of all these diseases and by rotating I'm also reducing the potential for resistance for not only anthracnose but also dollar spot and and other diseases where we've had resistance to so it's a global approach for an overall program that first and foremost controls your major diseases but second also does a very good job of rotating products or tank mixing so we don't have as much of an issue or concern with with fungicide resistance plus many of these new chemistries like the SDHIs um, these products have limited they have restrictions which limits the number of products you, number of applications you can make in a growing season so and that's not just for your target disease. That's, if you use an SDHI, you have limits of how many times you can use it on the golf course for any disease. And and really, where the fertility programs work into this is, is really important. I mean, you cannot control these diseases, particularly at with fungicides alone. And we proved that back in the 90s and, and 2000s. Uh, you, we had people throwing the kitchen sink at these uh, and, and they just couldn't control the disease because their cultural practices were not where they needed to be, particularly fertility. And I can honestly tell you that some of the work done by one of our previous students who just graduated, James Hemphling, who now is on the West Coast working for Bear, for actually um, showed very clearly that he could reduce um, fungicide use 80% on a consistent basis over three years just simply by having the... the BMP practices in place. Good fertility, good nitrogen, good mowing practices, good top dressing practices. And these these cultural practices stack. You know, good fertility programs, stacks on top of good top dressing programs, stacks on top of a good irrigation program, stacks on top of a good PGR program. So, you get to the point where if you have no, you have the, the non-BMP program versus the BMP program without fungicide. Uh, it's like an 80% reduction. Uh, if you put fun- mm-hmm. And then when you put fungicides in that, you can get complete control with, with minimal fungicide use. So it takes the, the typical mentality of I'm going to use fungicides to keep my diseases in check. And it turns it upside down and says I'm going to use good management practices to keep my disease program in check and use my fungicides to complete the job.
0: Excellent. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Let's um, talk a little bit about take-all patch. I've received a couple of questions about that specifically in the last couple of weeks or so from our from our guys in the field. I guess it's the time of year folks are thinking about disease issues that they've had maybe in, in 2020 and, you know, what can they do to prevent the same issues from occurring in 2021? Uh, specifically as it relates to take-all patch, what are your general management guidelines for for take-all going into the fall and into next spring? Well, take-all patch
1: also is influenced by um, by um, fertility, um, and again, it's it's also affected by pH. Um, we know that take-all patch is is worse at higher soil pHs. pH is uh, above, say, six five. Um, if you have very high pHs, say pHs in upper sevens or eights, it it indicates you have a lot of available lime free, you know free lime, calcium carbonate, mm-hmm. um, and it's very difficult to lower the pH. Um, but in, in soils where they're, they're not highly buffered, where you can do that, it's the ideal target pH is try to get your pH around 6.0 to reduce take-all patch and also diseases like summer patch. Um, what we found out working, um, looking at some of the literature on wheat, where take-all is also a problem, it's a different species of, of the Gamatomyces fungus, but it's closely related, uh, on wheat, they've shown clearly that that manganese can reduce uh, the severity of take-all on wheat. So, we looked at that that information. We designed our own studies in around 2003, 2004, 2005. And Dr. Joseph Heckman at Rutgers, he's the soil fertility person, did some work with me. And we showed clearly that you could reduce your anthracnose, I'm sorry, your take-all patch um, tremendously uh, with the application of manganese, uh, available manganese as a foliar spray. Um,
0: now were the would you classify manganese deficiency or are you looking more at tissue manganese or looking more at soil test manganese
1: yeah and, and I, i'd have to go back and look at that that's been that's been like 17 years since we did that work but <laughs> <laughs> the, the i think the clear the clear it was clear to us that um you had to apply the manganese as a foliar spray. you couldn't apply it as a granular mainly because the granular applications could get tied up in the soil because the fungus lives on a root surface. The fungus can convert available forms of manganese to unavailable forms for the plant. And so the way to get around that was to use a a foliar soluble application. And as long as it gets into the plant, you know, we found uh, applying uh, as little as two pounds of, of manganese, elemental manganese, per acre, not per thousand two pounds of elemental manganese per acre was enough to actually reduce a market reduction in anthracnose. And the time to get it into the plant was in the spring at greenup, because that's when the fungus was most active. That fungus is active in the spring and the fall. So basically you wanted to get it in there before the plant starts to show, show symptoms.
0: That that kind of leads me to my next question. You said spring and the fall, as far as fungicide applications go, if someone's going that route, can fall applications of fungicides for take-all patch provide a benefit the following spring and into the summer?
1: Yeah, I think they can. And in fact, um, where people have had a minimal problem with take-all, usually most people would just apply a green-up, apply a fungicide at green-up. But where people have had historical problems, And, you know, they may have really high pHs. They can't get the pHs down. Um, They know it's going to occur every year. Uh, That's where I think fall applications will help, and in particular where the winter is not all that cold. You know, if we have winters where we get really cold winters and somewhere, you know, you hardly even realize you have a winter. On the mild winters, that fungus can still infect the roots. Uh, as long as the soil temperatures are above 40 degrees, um, you can get infection. And so if you have full fungicide applications, usually say October, and then 21 days later to maybe early November, before the plant goes dormant, um, we've shown definite benefits for, for take-all patch control the following spring. Um, so our recommendation for hi- people who have historical problems with take-all is uh, two applications in the fall, uh, usually somewhere around, starting around mid-October, 21 days later, the second application, and then following it up at green up with an application again, and then 21 days later. And so it's it's a series of four applications, but they're split, two in the fall and two in the spring.
0: Is there a particular class of chemistry that's more effective than another?
1: Yeah, it basically boils down to two main chemistries, um, and that would be the strobys, uh and the DMI's. Um, there's there's also some work to show that um, that the benzimidazoles also suppress that disease, um, but I remember talking to Dr. Joe Joe Vargas at Michigan State and I remember him telling me that well, that's interesting because the isolates that he sees uh, in the Upper Midwest uh, don't respond to benzimidazoles very well. So, but I think the two that everyone agrees um, works well would be the strobes and also the DMI fungicides and. You know, so you can apply that on a rotating basis. You could even tank mix these. And there are a lot of products that are available today, which are actually pre-mixed formulations of, of those two chemistries.
0: Mhm. Yeah, it to be increasing every day, it seems sometimes.
1: Oh, yeah, we have, we have plenty of, uh, of pre-mixed combination products out there.
0: Plenty of options, plenty of options. How about uh, dollar spot receiving a new name? That's somewhat in the last few years, a, a recent development. I know you're involved in that process. Um, tell us a little bit of the history there. Yeah, well,
1: you know, um, it's, it's interesting because that's that's the probably the most common disease worldwide on cool season grasses. Um, it was identified back in the 1930s. Uh, we've known probably for 70 years that it was not a sclerotinia. It was called sclerotinia homeocarpa. But the problem was we didn't know what it was, and it's a very complex fungus. Um, And so the initial work done in uh, around 2000 with the tools that had available at the time uh, weren't good enough to really definitively say what it was. So we kept the name Sclerotinia homeocarpa. And then later on, uh, you know, within maybe, oh, I'd say we probably about eight or nine years ago, we started getting tools, a lot better tools, molecular tools, and two of my former students, uh, Dr. Joanne Crouch, who now is a, a scientist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and Dr. Um, uh, Lisa Byrne, who now is with Syngenta, uh, they were in my lab and, and they did outstanding work on, on trying to um, re- reclassify that fungus. And um, that work became collaborative work with people at NC State and Ohio State. And and so finally, by pooling our resources, and, and we had well over you know three or four thousand isolates from all over the world uh, to look at the diversity of that fungus, they were able to, after about six years worth of very painstaking work, be able to definitively say that it's not just one species. That first of all, it's not a sclerotinia, which everybody knew. Uh, it's not even a fungus that is classified by you know by any genus name. So it's a brand new genus. So it's a very unique fungus. It's not one species, but it's actually f- at least four species. And they renamed it Clariridia after Dr. Reed Funk, who was the turf grass breeder at Rutgers for 40 years and who spent his career trying to develop dollar spot resistant turf grasses. So they named the genus Clariridia, which means honorable Reed, if you do it in Latin. And the species name, the most common one is Jacksonii, which is named after Noel Jackson at Rhode Island. He spent his career as a pathologist working on dollar spot control, which is very appropriate. Um, and then the other three species uh, are actually less common. And it turns out, basically, most people were freaking out when we said there are four species. They said, oh, how can I deal with this? You know, making it more complicated. But the fact of the matter is, is that, in essence, there are two species which are only found in the UK. OK, one we call Clariridia uh, homeocarpa after the, 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 the original species name of the fungus, and that's found on primarily red fescue. Uh, and the other one is, is uh, Clariridia bentonii, uh, which is also only found in the UK. So in essence, for the rest of the people who live outside of the UK, there are only two species that really are problematic, one of which is primarily on cool season grasses, which is Clariridia jacksonii, and the other one. Uh, which is found primarily on warm season grasses, which is Clariridia matithiana. Yeah. In essence, turf managers can calm down a little bit, because if they're dealing with cool season grasses, they're pr- pretty much just dealing with Clariridia jacksonii. If they're dealing with a warm season grass, they're dealing with the matithiana.
0: Now, there, there is some speculation, I guess, amongst turf managers that the dollar spot that attacks in the spring may be a little different than the dollar spot that attacks in the fall. Is there any speciation there, or is that just, just different different effects in different seasons?
1: Now, that's a really, that's a great question, because I've always felt that. And in fact, if you talk to most superintendents, they'll tell you that their dollar spot they get in in the fall usually is a pitting type of dollar spot. It goes right down to the ground very quickly, whereas the dollar spot they get in the springtime, it tends, I won't say superficial, but it tends to be not as, it doesn't burn down into the into the roots as quickly. And also, I think if we, over the years, um, if I apply fungicides on our research greens, I get no control with benzimidazole on our research greens. We have benzimidazole resistance for dollar spot. But if I apply benzimidazole in the fall, I get control. So, it shows you that there are probably different strains that maybe have different temperature requirements, different temperature optima, um, and maybe the fall are a little cooler weather strains. And they might be a little different. Now, whether they're different species, um, that remains to be seen. I tend to doubt that. I, I would assume maybe they're they're races or, or substrains, subspecies. But I'll leave that up to the to the molecular yeah. taxonomists. The bottom line is I think yeah. you're correct. Uh, the visual appearance is different in the field. The way that the, the pathogen um, causes damage, the damage often looks different. And so I think superintendents are very cautious about how they're applying fungicides, and do they have a, have to have a different fungicide program in the fall versus the spring? And we're still working on that. Um, I think basically uh, that's the reason why about five years ago at Rutgers, we started doing a full dollar spot uh, screen for our fungicides because the question came up, our recommendations from our spring and summer fungicide programs, are they appropriate or just as good for the fall? We didn't really know. Uh, for the most part, I think they are. There are certain chemistries. I'll give you a good example like Secure, which is a contact fluazinam. That product, fluazinam, tends to be very, very effective in the fall. It's effective in the spring, but it tends to be particularly effective for us in the fall. So there are some nuances, that I think, there are that you can probably tease out of the research where general programs from the spring, summer are also effective in the fall, but maybe the fall there are some nuances to tweak your programs in the fall.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Plasman being one, I guess it sounds like T-methyl being a, another, at least in your your area.
1: Yeah, I don't want to say that people can use T-methyl in the fall and get control. I'm saying we actually have seen that in our research green, and that may be a very limited response, uh, but it's an indication that I think you have differences from your spring and fall the dollar spot outbreaks. I don't want people running out there and applying T methods, <laughs> saying I don't get control. So what's going on? You know,
0: <laughs> that is not a Doctor Clark approved recommendation. That is noted. <laughs>
1: it's an observation.
0: <laughs> observation. Observation. Going back to you mentioned in, in the early 2000s, the tools that were available, and just kind of curious as it relates, maybe specifically to, to dollar spot, but just in general in your career since you've been uh, at Rutgers since the nineteen seventies, is there something you could point to and say, hey, this is our one major advancement or one major tool that we have at our disposal that has helped us advance turf disease management more or understanding of turf disease more than any other advancement or technology, technique, whatever it may be?
1: Well, that's a hard one to put my finger on, but I will say this. um, We have available to us a tremendous um, increase in scientific research that was going on Over the past 40 years. Now superintendents, turf managers, sports field managers have accessible to them information that we didn't have back in the 70s. Um, So we know a lot more about it. We now have disease forecasting systems. It's not unusual to see people have weather stations that have, you know, disease predictive models. They can can go to things like Greencast online um, and, and get disease forecasts. So superintendents or turf managers have information more accessible so they can do a better job of planning their fungicide applications. We also now know that good fertility programs are critical to disease control and so I think turf managers are much more uh, attuned to making sure they're they're following best management practices and that translates into better fungicide control and less fungicide use. So I guess I would have to say just the availability of rapid availability of information through the phones, through the internet. We're in the 70s, you gotta realize that we didn't even have a computers back there. I mean, you know, basically you had a telephone and you called your friend up or you called up the, the extension specialist and said, what can I do? Um, now people have access to information at their fingertips, which I think is probably the biggest improvement I've seen.
0: Very interesting. Well, kind of that point, as far as information availability goes, you and your, your team produce a tremendous amount of, of research each year. Um, what's the best way for a superintendent, if they're interested in the results of those, of your trial work or just interested in what's going on? What's the best way for them to, to find that information?
1: Well, I think one of, the, one of the best ways, I mean, obviously, I like to drive them to our turf center website, which is uh, you know, turf.rutgers.edu, mm-hmm. um, and they can get that information there. But they also can go to a general clearinghouse like uh, you know TGIF at the Michigan State um, you know Turf Library. I mean that's a fantastic uh, a clearinghouse of turf information, which would have all of the information I talked about as well. Plus, they can just Google terms now. The Google search engines, Bing and Google. I mean they can get information at their fingertips very very quickly. Uh, and then just going you know um, accessing like uh, the the articles from the GCSA, website and USGA websites. And like I said, uh, it's it's easy, much easier now to get information that used to be.
2: Speaking of information, are, are you or any of your graduate students participating in the ASA uh, virtual? Uh, meeting this year? Yes, we all are. We're looking forward to that. Uh, haven't done a virtual crop science meeting
1: or ASA meeting before. Um, it'll be. It'll be interesting. I'm sure it's going to be very fruitful, a lot of information. The thing I'm going to miss is the, uh, is the personal contact and the interactions you get when you're on site.
0: Yep, I agree. I, I do not envy the planners of that meeting to have to scramble and figure out a new way to reinvent that meeting in a couple of months' time.
1: And, you know, looking even fur- further ahead, uh, the international turf grass meetings, which are run every four years, are going to be in Copenhagen next July and uh, i'm on the planning committee for that we ran the last one was at rutgers in uh, in 2017. that's a challenge for planning an event around a coronavirus pandemic um so i don't i am glad i didn't have to do that in
0: 2017. oh man especially around (laughs) the international event that's something else yeah so the uh the last question i have for you is we've touched on this a bit we're talking about take all patch but as we are moving into the fall months moving into october what are some things that superintendents should consider uh, to get ready for winter so that they can have a successful green up next spring?
1: Well, I think, you know, from a, I'm a pathologist, so I'll give you the disease perspective. I don't wade into the agronomics sure. uh, too much. I, I let the agronomists do that. But I think basically they have to make sure that if they've had any type of disease development that it's arrested and that they, they try to recover as quickly as possible. You want to increase your density. Right now, we have a lot of superintendents that were hit really hard with summer patch, really hard with anthracnose, uh, really hard with dollar spot, and their turf is pretty well thinned. And so they're they're in renovation mode, which is good. Uh, but you got to need to do that early. You need to make sure you you give the the grass a chance to really grow back. And if you can, go, the grass can go back into the winter in a in a really good state, healthy, good density. Um, it's going to come go into the Come out of the spring, hopefully, the same way and be lo- much less susceptible to disease. This, most diseases are opportunistic fungi, uh, caused by opportunistic fungi, and they really um, attack plants which are weakened. And uh, this has been a, for most superintendents, and, and at least in the Mid Atlantic, New England area, this has been a really tough summer uh, from the disease perspective. And so they're in um, recovery mode. And that's be my best advice. You know, uh, do it early, and uh, make sure that you don't allow the fungus, the the fungi, to recolonize these areas and get outbreaks dollar spot. We can get outbreaks right into November. Uh, don't let up on your on your scouting. Don't let up on your control. Keep the plants healthy going right into the winter.
0: That is sound advice, Raymond. Anything else you have?
1: Now, you guys ask great questions. Boy, I tell you, you, you did your homework on this one. You made me think really hard. I'm not used to thinking this hard this early in the morning. <laughs> when you asked me that dollar spot question, boy, I tell you, I think for a minute that the species names, and I'm I'm trying to delay a little bit, hoping oh, I can man. remember the fourth one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you well, could basically make anything up, and we wouldn't know the difference.
1: Yeah, but you're you know going to broadcast is? this. My, my turf pathology colleagues, we were scratching their <laughs> heads saying, what is he
2: talking about? <laughs> Well, yeah. As it related back to the the top dressing and the value of of top dressing, and you and then I, I was thinking about this as you noted that you know we have all this information at in our fingertips. Is there a surface firmness value that may correlate to I one having the the optimal top dressing incorporated into into their canopy? You know, is that a value is there a value there that one could say yeah i'm hitting i don't know what it is 400 whatever it might be and that's that's good surface firmness good top dressing uh in in the canopy has that there been a correlation between the surface firmness value and disease and top dressing there may very
1: well be uh, i'm not familiar with it you know someone like dr john uh, jim murphy who's a R- our, you know, extension specialist surf management is agronomist here, might be able to better answer that. I I think that it's just, we know there's association with top dressing and firming up the surface. Um, We know that a firmer surface and a dry surface that's not too dry actually is improved over, you know, a very soft surface.
2: I just know our, our customers use those, those moisture probes so well and I'm, you know, and they might also incorporate a surface firmness value, you know, if they had that information at, in their knowledge base. But
1: yeah, yeah. and that's okay.
2: a, that's, Thank a good, you. that's a good question for
1: someone like Jim or another um, field agronomist, because I think you have, I think it's, it's very likely that there is, but I don't know what the, well, I don't know what the value is. Yeah.
0: Well. We appreciate your time. Uh, we will all the, the different resources that you listed listed off. I made some notes here. We'll include those in the in our show notes that we can include with the um, with the podcast. So if there's anyone that's interested in more information or specifically in the uh, in the articles that we referenced today, that'll all be included. So thanks for your time. I know our guys really value your input and really value your uh, your wisdom. Well, that wraps up our interview with Dr. Clark. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed, references to the studies we mentioned can be located in the episode show notes. If you want to support the show, you can help us out by subscribing to us on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address, or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at turfdudes at heralds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. We'll see you next time.